So I'm going to be preaching from the passage um, that Steve read earlier, Romans 5, 6 through 10. And what I want us to be thinking about is kind of this word reconciliation. Because the gospel is a message and a reality of reconciliation. Um, Kind of synonymous with reunion, if you would. Every once in a while, I don't know if you guys do this, I haven't done it in a year or so, I pop on YouTube and I, I watch reunions between soldiers and their family. Anyone do that? And they surprise them and you get all emotional, you're crying in the other room, no one knows about it, but you get all emotional about it. I love how, you know, they maybe haven't seen their loved ones for 18 months or 9 months or whatever it is, and they surprise them and, and they show up, whether it's at their children's school or it's at the house, whatever it is, you see that there's been distance between them and that they miss them and there's been a separation and just the surprise and the reconciliation, it brings laughter, it brings joy, it brings tear, it brings happiness. And, you know, the gospel has that same effect on us. It's reconciliation between God and man. Um, for those who are lost and now who are found in Christ, you know there was a time when we felt that separation, We felt lost. We felt disconnected from God. We felt far away from God, but the cross of Christ brought us close. That's a reunion. It's a reconciliation. And when you really feel the gospel, when we really know the gospel, when we hear those words of scriptures, we know beyond a shadow of doubt it's true that we're in the Father's arms now because of the work of Jesus. Amen? It's a deep thing. It's something that we can only know by the Spirit of God and those who are born of the Spirit of God. We know that. That spirit of adoption where we cry Abba Father, where he is ours and we are his and we have been reconciled and we we know that that's everything we needed and all we needed was to be reconciled to God. And I want you to feel that today because that's why we can call this Friday good. No, it's a funny thing to have an instrument of capital punishment as our emblem of joy today. You know, you look up there and you see the red on the cross and we say it's a good Friday and you, you have this instrument of death, but it's so good because that cross is where the person of Christ, where he died so that we can be reconciled, so that he could be the doorway to salvation, so he could bridge the gap, so that we could be reconciled. And as we just sang, there was no other way by which we could be saved except for the innocent blood of Our Savior shed for us. There was no other way that we could have atoned. Have we not tried to earn our salvation by works? How are you doing with that? You start on Monday, you don't even make it to Monday night. There's no other way to atone. There's no other person who could atone. None of our goodness could have been enough. It all falls short of the glory of God and the perfection of Jesus. Yet this cross, this Christ, bridges the gap. And reconciles us fully to himself. And I want you to hear that today. There's three things we're going to focus on in this gospel of reconciliation. The first one is that God initiates love towards us based on who he is. Secondly, God's blood brings reconciliation. And thirdly, God's love moves him against evil. Okay? Do you guys hear that? God's love towards us was initiated because of who he is. God's blood brings reconciliation and God's love moves him against evil. So let's start with how that first starts where God's love was initiated towards us 
while we were still sinners. If we can hear that verse and boast, we're not analyzing ourselves properly. There was nothing in us. We were undeserving, unworthy for Christ, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to die for us. You know, some people think, well, there were good people on earth that Christ had to come and die. And maybe I understand what you're saying, but by the definition of good, we all fall short. Jesus is the definition of good, right? Who's matching up? Would you let someone pass on the road today on Main Street? Who's measuring? No one's measuring up to that perfection. We all fall short. Only thing we could probably morally stay is people less bad than others. Oh, that's a less bad person. Maybe. Maybe we can get away with that. That person is less bad than that person. Maybe we could get some leeway. But according to this scripture, what does it say? It says, scarcely someone dies for a good person. Scarcely someone dies for that. So this would be those, this is rare in these cases. Maybe a father would give his life for a child. Maybe a mother would give her life for a daughter. Maybe a brother would give his life for a sister. Maybe a friend who you really love, you'd give your life for them. But even in cases of people we deem less bad or good, it's very rare that someone would give their life for them. But let's throw this in here. How many people you know, how many news stories have you heard where someone laid their life for someone they deemed unworthy? Have you ever seen anyone give their life for someone on death row? How about a thief, a criminal, a felon? Would you lay your life down for someone you deem unworthy? No, it just, it doesn't happen. I just, I heard a story, it was a horrible story recently, this past year, it was in, I believe, Florida, where these teenagers were on the shore, and there was an older man who was drowning in front of them in the ocean. And they were standing, they were watching him, and they were laughing, and they were videotaping him drowning. Okay? He died. He died, and they're being tried for it. But you know what happened? They didn't deem him worthy to save. They didn't deem him that valuable. They loved themselves too much to even put themselves in harm's way because they didn't deem him worthy. And when that happens with self-love, when we love ourselves and don't deem people that valuable, we won't lay down our life for someone we deem unworthy. It just doesn't happen. This is the amazing thing about the gospel. Hear this, that God lays his life down for the unworthy. Some of you might have said, I'll give my life for my son. I'll give my life for my daughter. I'll give my life for my wife. But would you give your life for your enemy? Would you or me, would I give my life for a person I deem unworthy? Or do I fall in the crowd that let's get rid of the bad people anyways that making this world a bad place? What the gospel is saying that he came to die for sinners like me and you. Whether you're less bad or not, we're all in the same category. That there's no boasting and that we are worthy for Christ to die. And this is gospel love. Do you guys hear me? This is the stuff that changes the world. Because the Pharisees even could love those who love them. That comes easy. It's not hard to love those who love you and you, you love deeply. And have even familial ties and those kind of things. The real love of Christ is beyond that. And that's what Christ did. The love that made him came down, come down and take on flesh was initiated because he is love. And to do this, you've got to understand that our God is triune in nature. You've got to understand that he didn't need us. And I've been talking about this lately. Some people will falsely teach us that we were, God created us out of a need that he had. 
all right? He needed to be in relationship, relationship, so he made humanity to be in relationship. He had a need. He needed a family. But that fails to understand the triune nature of God, that he was perfectly fulfilled and happy, Father, Son, and Spirit, before he even created the world. A God that creates out of need is imperfect, but a God who already exists in love in his triune nature, one in essence, but three in person, he creates out of the overflow of his love to share his love, not because he needs anything. Do you guys hear that? What is happening here? So... The Muslim faith has, a, faith has a single person God. The Jewish faith has a single person God. And other faiths have single person gods or many gods. But I want to focus on monotheism right now. We are Trinitarian nature. We believe that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Do you know what that does? That makes our God, our God love even before he created. He was love. He was Father. He was Son. He was Spirit. He was one yet existed in three. And he creates because he wants to share that love with us. And that's what drove him to the cross. Not that he had to. If Jesus didn't die for any of us, he would have still been perfectly loving and just. It would have been just. Have we all broken the rules? There's nothing in us that demands that Christ comes down and die for us, but his love compels him to do that because he's going to share that love, and his plan of sharing his love with us is not going to be stopped. See, a single-person God is narcissistic before he even created anything. He's just chilling. He doesn't have to pay attention to you. Some of you people know people like that. They just want to be alone. That's why it says, he who seeks isolation seeks his own desires in Proverbs. We don't serve a narcissistic God. We serve a God who is love before he even created us. And he created us out of overflow of love, not out of need. He created us so we can share. And this is why Jesus prayed in John 17. He said, Father, the same unity, the same, he says, make the disciples that you gave them, make them one like we are one. What he's trying to do is, God is calling us into fellowship with the triune God. Do you guys hear me? And so the fact that our sin ripped us away, Jesus says that's not happening. I'm going to give my life to share my love with my family, and they will be mine, and I will be theirs. Does that make sense, guys? That need, we need to understand that because that's truly the glory of God. The glory of God is greatly displayed when it's shared. When it's shared, that's the glory of God, that God shares his love for us and he died for us while we are still sinners. Secondly, the blood of Christ is the only thing that would reconcile us. If you look at the pattern of scripture, what happens when Adam and Eve sins? Does everyone know that when they sin? What does God do? God makes them close. How did he make them close? He killed an animal. There was bloodshed. He killed an animal. There was bloodshed. He clothed them. There had to be atonement. What happened with Abraham? There has to be bloodshed for sin. What happened with Moses? He's a high priest. He sacrifices. The wages of sin are death. Some people might ask today, why is there so much death in the world? Why is there so much war in the world? Why is there so much bloodshed? Because of sin. Where there is sin, bloodshed follows. So what Jesus does is he lives a perfect life. He becomes the Lamb of God, and you, you see this pattern here. You see sin committed, you see sacrifice presented, you see God's wrath satisfied, and you see the person satisfied who puts a faith in the work of Christ. You know, I hear this question all the time people ask me. 
and this is important on Good Friday, they asked me how, and someone asked me a few weeks ago, and this is a just and fair question. Is it just for someone to suffer in hell eternally for temporary sins here in this world? Like say someone steals from someone, say someone mistreats someone, say someone um, commits whatever transgression you want to come with, come up with or think about. Is it just that they suffer eternally in hell? So I understand that question. It's an important question when you're understanding God and his love and you're working through those things. Um, But when you're just talking about humanity, about sinning against each other, I can understand the question a little more because as the scripture teaches us, we're all sinners. So we're, we're sinning against people who are less bad than others. But when you start to break into the area where we're sinning against God is infinitely valuable, that's where infinite punishment is just. So Jonathan Edwards did the, did the best work on this. And this is how I want to explain it to you guys. God is infinitely valuable, okay? He's infinitely worthy. He's infinitely loving. If we sin against him, if we reject him, if we blaspheme him, what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall worship any other god. If we sin like that against God, infinite punishment is just because we've sinned against an infinite being. Does that make sense, guys? He is infinitely valuable, therefore infinite punishment is just. If we only understood the seriousness of that, because the question I never hear is how come we get infinite heaven because Jesus died? Have you heard that question? Everyone's all like, what happens with hell forever? How about heaven forever? You know why we get heaven forever? Because he who is infinitely valuable, infinitely worthy, and infinitely loving, laid down his life on a cross for us. Therefore, we put our faith in him and get eternally in love forever. That just clicked with a couple people. I saw it. I saw a few heads get a thought in there. We get Jesus forever because he who is most valuable, he who is sinless, took our sin upon the cross. And this gospel is so powerful. It's the only thing in the scripture you see the power of God onto salvation. It's so simple, yet it's so powerful that God himself came and died for our sins so that we could have him forever This is why this Friday is so good. Because you know the questions that follow are, the gospel's a bloody book. I'm reading a book, and you can't argue that. It's a bloody gospel and a bloody book. It's like blood from the beginning to end. Like it's not for the faint of heart. I'm reading through Kings right now. For those who read in depth the Bible, when you start reading about Jehu and the way he was taking Ahab and his descendants out, you say, God ain't worried about me reading about blood and what sin brings. It's rated R. It's a bloody book because God hates evil. People are always acting like, oh, why, you know, do we have to bring up hell? Do we have to say punishment? Is God angry? You don't want a God that doesn't get angry over evil. Who wants a spouse that you can do whatever you want and they're like, hey, go ahead. They don't love you. If you have a spouse that never gets jealous, they don't love you because God gets jealous. If you have a spouse that never, I remember a couple was sent me one time and when me and Natalie first got married, let me tell you, there were some arguments. 
We're figuring out boundaries. You're messing with my boundaries. I'm messing with your boundaries. Stop asking me where I'm going. And we had this couple over. And they sat there, and we're like, we're kind of just being open and honest. I think that's how you should live your life. We were early in the marriage. I was like, man, we love each other, but we're still, we argue. I think we were like in our third year, and we were like the first year and a half, it was a lot of arguments. And they were like, we never argue. Argument? What is that? I was like, you liar. You lie. I don't know what I'm doing right now, but... I knew either they were lying or they didn't have an honest relationship, right? Because when you're two sinners living in a marriage, you're going to get jealous sometimes. You're going to overstep boundaries sometimes. You're going to get angry sometimes. When someone does evil even against your wife, and I'm just talking in marriage ways, if someone does evil against your wife, like someone did something to Natalie and I don't get mad, I don't love her deeply, Do you guys hear what I'm saying? You want a God that gets ferocious against evil, against sin, and whatever destroys, because if he doesn't, he's not perfect and he's not God. So God's love moves him to hate evil. You know, I talked with a man, uh, me and Joe moving some stuff as I moved recently, and a man we knew from working in an electrical trade pulled up and he started talking. And he was talking to us, and he was talking about, he talked about how he became a dad. And when he became a dad, he really understood what love was. And this is the story he gave. He said, I was at Disney World with my um, three-year-old daughter. And he said, two boys, nine and ten years old, just ran by and knocked her over. They knocked her over. He said, I caught my daughter with my foot, and I grabbed those two boys by the neck. He said, I never knew love like that. Right? When you love something so deeply, deeply, when something tries to harm that object to your love, you go against that evil. You guys hear what I'm preaching? This is what Jesus did on the cross. We don't know what was stacked against us. Everything was stacked. It's sin, death, Satan. Jesus comes down and he hates evil so much that he takes the hit on our behalf. He bears the sin on our behalf and we rejoice because we're reconciled to God. He hates evil. He hates sin. His love compels him to move against that which he hates. And some people say, why, why is the evil? It's, many times you can explain the evil as the absence of something. That's why you hear unholy. It's not holy. You hear ungodly. It's the absence of godliness. You hear unrighteousness. It's the absence of righteousness. When I told you that story about you two, what did those people do when they saw that man drowning? They were unloving. And when you lack love, you do that which is evil and you act in ways that are detrimental to your fellow man and blasphemous against God. We need a God who hates evil. And this is the gospel. I need you to hear this. We are sinners. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. There's only one way to deal with our sins without all of us having to pay for our sins and being judged by God and spending eternity in hell. And that is for a perfect Savior to lay down his life and shed his blood for us so that our sins can be atoned for. So it goes like this.
God who is a loving father has to judge evil. He hates evil. He has to punish that which is evil, wrong, and sinful. Jesus willingly takes on flesh, is born of a virgin, lives a sinless life, and goes to the cross and willingly takes the wrath of God the Father. It's poured out on God the Son in every one of our sins. It's a miracle. Every one of our sins is put upon Christ at that cross so that by faith, if we believe in the person and work of Jesus, that he took our sins from the grave, and we'll talk about that resurrection on Sunday, if we believe that gospel, we are saved and reconciled to God. Amen? That's the gospel. That's why this Friday is so good. That's why I want us to rejoice in this bloody gospel because in the blood we see the love of God that he is sharing with us, that love that has always been in him. He is sharing, he's calling us into relationship with him, into the Father's arms by the work of God the Son, by the power of the Spirit. So I just want to give you one application point in closing. It's a wonderful thing to be reconciled to God. And it's also a wonderful thing to share the message of reconciliation with others. You have the message of the gospel whereby people can be set free and be reconciled with God. All they must do is believe in their heart and confess it. And how will they hear it unless we preach that message to those people who are in our lives? Please hear this urgent call. God has placed people in your life that need to hear the gospel, this message of reconciliation. So brothers and sisters, please do not be silent. Share the gospel with the people who God has placed in your life in the hope that they will be reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters, please do not be silent. Share the gospel with those God has put in your life with the hope that they might be reconciled with God. Brothers and sisters, do not be silent. Share the gospel with the people God has put in your life with the hope that they might be reconciled with God. Let's pray.